Jesus responded by speaking again in parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding party for his son. He sent his servants to call those invited to the wedding party, but they didn't want to come. Again, he sent other servants and said to them, tell those who have been invited, look, the meal is all prepared. I've butchered the oxen and the fattened cattle. Now everything's ready. Come to the wedding party. But they paid no attention and went away, some to their fields, others to their businesses. The rest of them grabbed his servants, abused them, and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his soldiers to destroy those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his servants, the wedding party is prepared, but those who were invited weren't worthy. Therefore, go to the roads on the edge of town and invite everyone you find to the wedding party. Then those servants went to the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. The wedding party was full of guests. Now when the king came in and saw the guests, he spotted a man who wasn't wearing wedding clothes. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? But he was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, tie his hands and feet and throw him out into the farthest darkness. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. Many people were invited, but few people are chosen. This is the word of God. So I really wish that Spotify had um, like Walmart version of music available these days. Um, you know, for that not so rare moment where you're in your minivan full of kids and you just want like the angstiest screamo song or the most questionable mumble rap song you know, without a whole lot of parental or spousal cleanup afterwards. I think this room is probably a little young to even know what the Walmart version of things are. Do you guys know that? Is that a thing? So there's these CDs. They're iridescent. They look like DVDs and they play music. Uh, <coughs> if you were in the 90s, uh, you probably had like a catalog case of these in your car and you would buy some of these from Walmart and they had like strategically located mutes and like reggaeton horns or like what what's, you know, um, around cuss words. And you could always and only buy these albums at Walmart. They were all your favorite albums a little cleaner, right? And, and so they didn't have the parental advisory sticker on it which got him past mom and dad, you know? Um, following the collision of Meg's beautiful lesson, which is Luke's ver gospel's version of that story, and Gary's great reading from Matthew's version of the parable of the great feast, we might feel like something similar is happening here. That Matthew's version, what with like the people killing the messenger and some retaliatory city burning and weeping and gnashing of teeth is kind of like the uh, parental advisory version. And it's no wonder why the Godly Play curriculum writers chose to use the Luke, the Luke version, right? So I'm not going to recap too much as not to belabor the story that you've already heard more or less twice. 
Um, but I want to make a couple observations that I hope will challenge us as we continue in this Lenten season following Jesus to and through the cross. First off, <coughs> Jesus always has the quote-unquote insiders in his crosshairs. It says Jesus responds again. You know, he had just riled up the religious leaders with a parable about a wicked tenant farmer killing the king's son. He coaxes them into a little audience participation, which yields an answer for the king's response, um, what, what they should do to someone that, that does something like that. And they answer really, like, enthusiastically, completely destroy those jerks and find a better tenant, right? They've answered too correctly. He's kind of boxed them in a corner. You can start to scan the crowd, and you can see they're kind of shifting in their shoes a little. And there's a little recognition of some of the guys in the back, and the call and responses start to lessen, and the faces start to turn from excited to confused to, like, is he talking about me? And, and then to, like, downright pissed off, right? Like, that's what's happening when he's telling this story. To paraphrase the psalmist, the trap they set for him seems to have caught their legs instead, right? Like, that's what's happening with these parables. They're hard to open, easy to break, and they might snap at you, <laughs> right? Jesus is running circles around them, and then he, like, sets the hook. He says, haven't you ever read in the scriptures? Haven't you ever read in the scriptures to these guys? He says, haven't you ever read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It's amazing in his eyes. Therefore, I tell you that God's kingdom will be taken away from you, and it will be given to a people who produce its fruit. Whatever falls on this stone will be crushed, and the stone will crush the person it falls on. He's basically saying, do you guys even read your Bibles? Well, you all are getting like lulled into the opening lines of Psalm 118, your love endures forever, because it's like a really melodic worship song. I'm out here talking about radical renovation, talking about a cornerstone, talking about building the kingdom of God from the ground up, talking about taking the whole Lego set, the whole Lego city apart and rebuilding it using all the pieces you already think you know and how you think they should go together and how they should fit, and I'm reconfiguring them. I'm transforming them. I'm transfiguring them. And that spare piece that doesn't seem to fit y'all's building plans is actually the most load-bearing, vital piece that must be in place first, lest the whole building collapse upon itself. And you almost left that piece on the table, he's telling them. Do you see how threatening this is to a group of folks who, like, granted, they're doing their best, but they just seem so deeply invested in upholding their own understanding of who God is and how God works and therefore what they should expect in the world. They're way more invested in, in upholding that vision than they are of following God in this dynamic movement, this mission to seek out and save the lost and to heal a broken creation. Oftentimes God's hardest words, like the most difficult ones to stomach through the prophets, through Jesus, through Paul, 
always come from within God's family and have the quote-unquote insider in the crosshairs. The second observation is that the kingdom of the heavens is like an invitation. The Bible is a book that is just filled with feast and food and meals. It's a strange thing that throughout Christian history, there's this persistent, like, strain of heresy that kind of pops up over and over throughout. It's called Gnosticism, and it peeks its head out in many different forms. This is Gnosticism right here. Like, it, it tries to separate head and heart and body, so it makes us kind of like brains on sticks. Like, really smart, not super emotionally, relationally intelligent or tuned in to who God is, what God's doing, what we actually even desire in the world. It makes what we know way more important than what we love and do. And you think with this many meals in our founding scripture, we'd realize by now that the head and the heart and the stomach can't be taken apart and that the table is where they all come together. That life with God requires our senses and our appetites and our tastes and our whole selves. Like, just a quick scan, and I, I won't go long on this part, but if you look at meals in the Bible, uh, especially wedding feasts, but also like really important meals like the Exodus Passover and Exodus 12, is, is they, they, they share in this meal ever after that to remember by eating a lamb who takes away the sins of the world, by eating unleavened bread because they didn't even have time for the yeast and like a panoply of bitter herbs that viscerally spark their memories and their taste in, in about their suffering uh, under slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh. Or start the gospel story in John's gospel. John 2 begins with a wedding in the town of Cana and Jesus submitting to his mom's request to keep the party going to change 12 large empty stone barrels into more than 160 gallons of the best wine the caterer had ever laid his palate to. The entire story of the Bible concludes then at the wedding feast of the Lamb in Revelation 19. It says, I heard something like a huge crowd, like rushing water and powerful thunder. And they said, Alleluia, the Lord our God, the Almighty, exercised his royal power. Let us rejoice and celebrate and give him glory for the wedding day of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. She was given fine, pure white linen to wear for the fine linen is the saints' acts of justice. In between the Gospels, particularly loose. Luke's gospel is stitched together with meals, like grandiose and common meals, where the table is a place where God to be known, experienced, thanked, and celebrated. Later on, even today in worship, we'll gather around this table, and we'll remember a meal that we were never originally at. Isn't that a, a funny thing? Uh, we do it so often, and uh, I don't think we put that together often. We say, do this in remembrance of me. We weren't there. <laughs> But nonetheless, this meal changed the world. It changed our world. It was a small, seemingly nondescript Jewish Passover meal but with an itinerant rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, 
and his ragtag crew of apprentices, and he took bread, blessed, broke it, gave it to them, and he claimed, this is my body. He did the same to the cup and says, this is my blood, and the world has never been the same since. You can see then how rich this practice is, gathering around the table. It engages our whole creaturely existence, our fragile need to eat to live, the absurd above and beyond grace that lets us not only get fueled, but also lets us taste and enjoy this rhythm of feasting and fasting that disciplines our whole selves towards what really matters, that makes room in our lives. We get to break bread with someone, even for a single meal, and when we do that is to share with them in something really intimate, really immediate, really personal, but also social. I think sometimes we, we forget this. Like, just having someone over to dinner or to lunch and cooking for them, to host someone, is an act of considering them more than yourself. Taking into consideration their, their quirks, their tastes, their dietary restrictions, their, the pace that they eat. That's really hard for me because I eat really fast. So if you see me nibbling around the edges of the chips, then I'll like slam the burrito at the very end so we end at the same time, right? <laughs> I just gave, gave it away, right? <coughs> um, but also, if, y if you've ever sat across from someone, you can tell who's talking more by whose food is still on their plate and not in their mouth. And, and so e just simply eating with someone requires us to pay attention uh, ask questions, give someone else space, either to eat or to talk, right? It's like some of the most meaningful moments of your life will happen in a smoky kitchen, around a table at a banquet hall, over barbecue while watching fireflies, or like eating a taco out of a truck. Like some of your most important moments of your life. It's no wonder that Jesus tells a story about what the kingdom is like, and it's an invitation to a feast. Sure, the kingdom is like the feast in the song that we just sang earlier, and all NCAA jokes aside, We Will Feast in the House of Zion is one of the most hopeful and gratifying songs we sing together, because it looks forward to a time when God will be our all in all and when sickness and sorrow and hunger will be permanently displaced for feasting in God's presence. The kingdom of the heavens is like a wedding feast, but perhaps its coming is like the, is like the invitation to the feast. The kingdom of the heavens is like an invitation to a feast. Accepting invitations can be hard. If we're not careful, parables like this can really create a lot of anxiety within us about missing that one big invitation from God and then getting, like, dinged and suffering for it, right? Howard Thurman calls this the great moment in our lives, the chance to make a pivotal decision towards God. This was, uh, this was like, uh, Thur Thurman says, um, having... So, like, uh, the, the great moment that the figures in our parables have excuses against accepting the invitations. Meg talked about it. I bought oxen. I got married. Uh, I, I just can't go. Uh, I got to watch the kids. Things like that, right? 
And Thurman says, living, the living of a person's life day by day is the only preparation for the great moment. The day by day, the great moment is never something that is irrelevant to the life that you are living, to the way you are uh, taking into the journey you are making. So in other words, the, the ways you accept small invitations consistently, daily, on a daily basis to the, your ability to grow your your ability to accept normal personal invitations grows your ability to accept God's invitation. The ways that you allow yourself to be interrupted, you'll see those interruptions as as possible um, injections of grace rather than disruptions in your plans. Right? How you'll have. Uh, your plans change or that you might even eat at someone else's table and it, it might be like weird food at a weird table. That happens sometimes when you do this. It's not foolproof. But in, for majority culture folks like me, like this is kind of hard because you really like to be the host and being the guest kind of puts you like in a weird spot. Um, but that's, that's how we, we grow in the day-to-day -day so that we can make that big moment decision that we can answer that call. Uh, I experienced this a little bit a few years ago. I was on a, on a good neighbor team for World Relief, which hel helps uh, relocate and situate and move in uh, refugees. And this specific family uh, had come uh, from Burma, and they, they were uh, Karen language people. And um, we went to RDU with our small group and picked them up. And it was like 1 in the morning, or we picked them up about midnight. and brought them back to the apartment in Oak Creek Village, and we had already moved stuff in and, and settled them in, and we're like, like, surely you guys are tired, we're gonna leave you, and they insisted that they make us Nescafe coffee at one in the morning. And we drank it and hung out for a long time uh, because Nescafe coffee at one in the morning will do that. Um, but it was a good lesson for us to, to be in that space to receive whatever they were going to throw at us, um, because that that was that was the way, um, even in a small gesture, that they moved from being guest to host in this new place. Or uh, our family experienced this even just last weekend when we were invaded by some church friends with kindness on Sunday and given donuts and uh, people just knocked on a door that we never enter and we're like who are these creepy telemarketers and then we realize it was this amazing gift to us and so I encourage you guys to grow in that uh, in your ability to invade and be invaded by kindness the last observation is that our response to this invitation our response requires our all Matthew's version of Jesus's invitation parable has a couple obvious differences from Luke's. The first is the treatment of the king's messenger. They literally killed the messenger. <laughs> it's not just a saying. Uh, Robert Farr Capen says, Jesus is in telling the story, and this guy's wild, right? This commentator, he says, Jesus is out to stigmatize the in incongruous enormity of this rejection, so he insists on nothing less than heaps of murdered mailmen, is what he says, right? Like, sometimes I read this guy, it's like, no, man, like, that's not it. <laughs> this sounds like an awful lot like how prophets were treated 
for offering an invitation to God's people to return to God. Sure, their, quote, invitation often sounded more like judgment, but it was mostly kind of a no wrapped in a yes. It was a no to the things that were filling up their lives and their hearts and getting in the way of them uh, being wholehearted to God. It was a no to the ways they've gone astray. It was a no to their imaginations of grandeur and ease without reliance on God. But it was a yes with an exclamation point, a yes of God's love and care and acceptance and provision. It was a resounding yes of God's desire to be with them. It was a yes blasted from the rooftops that the feast is set, the fatted calf is prepared, everything is on the table. And there is a chair pulled open with a napkin draped over the back and it's ready for you. This is the message of the prophets. This is the message of Jesus. This is hopefully our message that we accept and that we offer. In this response to God's hospitality is itself a smaller scale act of hospitality. Isn't that weird how like grace begets grace, hospitality begets hospitality and requires hospitality? See, maybe that's why the king brings fire down upon the town. Let me say more. <laughs> Again, remember that this is storyland, right? There's kind of a suspended reality. And Jesus is pulling this sort of like ancient Near Eastern Jerry Bruckheimer move with their version of like explosives and CGI. And he's shouting and drawing large startling figures to them. Perhaps their Jewish minds would have skimmed back towards the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah, whose chief sin be beyond some pretty specific heinous acts was that they weren't hospitable to God's messengers. They didn't return lowercase h hospitality for God's uppercase h hospitality. And they got fire and brimstone for it. So that's the same story world that's happening for Jesus. When God extends an invitation, we do well to lay aside our excuses or even our best laid plans and accept because this invitation will continue to go out. If we don't accept it, it's just going to keep going out to highways and byways. I love the kids said, what's a byway? I don't know what a byway is. It's a side street probably, right? It's like the bad street, right? If for whatever reason we fancy ourselves like kind of too fancy for the invitation, God's going to move on to those who think more of God and less of themselves, or at least make some room for that this like he's gonna move to the least the last the loss the littlest the closest to death this is the heartbeat of Jesus's ministry and it becomes like the animating hope for the Apostle Paul that latecomers like us Gentiles most of us might be grafted into what God's been doing for a long time that we might have a seat at the table not because of anything that we've done but because of God's gracious invitation to us and here's the really cool thing none of this is like zero sum it's not going to be used up many are invited few are chosen but our seats don't displace the seats of others 
and chosenness is based only on our return volley of God's initiative and God's faithfulness and God's invitation and God's outrageous grace. The last kind of strange detail added to Matthew's non-Walmart version of this story is the harsh treatment of the guest without the right clothes. To be quite honest, I don't really know what to do <laughs> with this. And most commentators are like, I don't really know what to do with this. Move on. <coughs> There's been some kind of persistent speculation from readers of this passage for a long time. that, in Again, in Jesus' story world, uh, the king must have provided appropriate dinner attire in the this ragamuffin simply refused to fully accept. That he was an outlier at a strange party, someone who at once wasn't dressed well enough but perhaps was dead set on his own integrity, keeping his own clothes, having his own way. In the king's like cartoonishly brutal response shows the expectation was that he should have just received it all. He should have given it all and he should have received it all. Anything the king offers you, you accept. The king engages the, the guy. He says, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And remember last week in Matthew's gospel, friend is not friendly. Like, that's the same word, right? The buddy, how did you get in here? How often do we engage with God this way? Sometimes, even begrudgingly, we accept the invitation of the heavenly king while not fully dressing the part. We don't fully receive everything God offers to give us. This, I think, is a reason for Paul's language of, quote, putting on Christ as if Christ were a garment. After Paul has his own harsh words for the Christian community in, at uh, Galatia, like, man, if Twitter had been around in first century, like, Paul would have just roasted these guys. He, he starts out chapter 3, he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Like, whose spell are you under? But then, later in that chapter, he tells them, I think this is a slide, Matt. You are all God's children through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is language of participation and hiddenness. But that can seem kind of scary. So costly to us. Though it's actually pretty free. It feels like it costs us so much to receive something like that. We start to feel like we might lose ourselves. Again, we want the yes without the no, right? The benefit without the cost, the feast without the table manners. As Flannery says, what people don't realize is how much religion actually costs. They think it's a big electric blanket when, of course, it is the cross, faith as a big electric blanket when it's actually the cross. And it is this cross. It's this risky place where we lose it all in order to gain more. We lose it all in order to gain more because Christ has gone before us. Christ died for us. 
Christ joined us into his new and lasting life so that we can feast, that we can answer God's steady, persistent, ongoing invitation for us to participate in God's rich and tasty life. It's a life with which never runs out. It's a life that asks for all and gives more. It's a life together in Christ. Will you all pray with me? Father, thanks for this tricky story that's hard to open. Um, Thanks um, for the degree that you've opened it up for us today. Uh, Continue to challenge us, help us uh, drill down and open our lives up to you that you might work. Help us receive your invitations and answer, uh, not just enthusiastically, but but with all of us. Um, uh, Clothe us in Christ. Cover us in your righteousness because we, we can't do it on our own. Um, join us with you as host, um, inviting others to the party. Thanks for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.